thank you so much, Matthew, for joining me today. I'm really interested to talk about your mission, your vision for what Transcend is going to be. It's a really, really interesting concept. And obviously, it's at the forefront of a bunch of different things uh, spurring up in, in society now with, with sort of climate and how do we intertwine ourselves with nature a, a bit more and kind of be you know a catalyst for it um, and put back into nature rather than be sort of destructive, we can kind of add to it in a way that's, you know, different thinking, you know, so it's, it's really interesting reading about your path. And then the one thing that was really interesting to me was, and the first question I'll ask is how does a, how does a landscape architect become the number seven employee at Uber? That's got to be an interesting story. <laughs> yeah. Well, thanks. Uh, thanks so much for having me. Uh, I'm really excited to be here. And um, basically, how does that happen? Landscape architecture was was uh, very much a passion of mine and, and something that I was interested in learning more and like using as a career and uh, went to Cornell for that specific purpose. And what's amazing about architecture or landscape architecture, or any of those types of studio based creative majors is they really do a great job in the early days of teaching you about the methodology of design based thinking and hmm. problem solving. As they were teaching me these skills, I just uh, bumped into a couple of entrepreneurially minded people on campus and who were kind of starting businesses. And it, it got me curious about what this entrepreneurship thing was. And then I had some random idea, uh, which was uh, at Cornell, we had all these like fraternity and sorority events that required buses for like wine tours and formals mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, just events that would take people off campus. And yeah, the, the transportation was always an issue. Um, you know, finding bus companies who would work with frats and sororities. It was always like, sure. Didn't want to do it. And so, <laughs> um, I reached out to a couple of bus companies and I was like, what if I, stepped in here to help facilitate like a really good relationship between you and these like arguably kind of sloppier events sure. know, that your buses get back super clean uh, and give you some peace of mind. Some insurance a little bit. Huh? Some insurance, exactly. And so I just started brokering buses to kind of create safe transportation for these different events. Um, and uh, it, it kind of took off and it just, it was fun starting a thing and getting people involved in a thing. and just getting involved in the entrepreneurship programs that uh, Cornell had to offer. And so I kind of got sucked deeper and deeper and deeper into it. And then I started taking some social entrepreneurship classes my senior year. Um, and I knew I was going to continue running my business once I graduated, which was really nice, especially since I was graduating in 2009 when the recession was like at its absolute, sure. nobody could get a job. Um, so it was nice to like have this thing that I had built that was going to be able to cover my expenses for a little bit after college. And I found through that social entrepreneurship class, these applications for the Unreasonable Institute, which was <laughs> this thing started by Daniel Epstein uh, in Boulder, Colorado. And uh, it was a, a entrepreneurship incubator for socially minded ventures. Mm -hmm. And um, I applied uh, for their inaugural class and, uh, and got accepted. And that was kind of the thing that definitely shifted uh, my journey in a lot of ways because um, I attended this incubator out in Boulder and, uh, and it was an amazing summer program and met these incredible mentors who were teaching us about social entrepreneurship and impact investing and like uh, triple bottom line businesses and um, what building something that both makes money and does good in the world could look like. And mm -hmm. so 
the concept had evolved into this, not just me brokering school buses for fraternity and sorority events, but the idea was essentially uh, that I would build out this prepaid taxi plan kind of like a meal plan, but for safe transportation okay. for students. And uh, I built out this entire layer of SMS-based um, <laughs> dispatching of taxis and debiting of your prepaid accounts that, you know, your parents would populate with money. And then you would just like SMS text to order a cab, and then it would automatically debit from your account. And we piloted this program at Cornell. And it was like a whole system that we were... Wow excited about. And so through that process and through the Unreasonable Institute process and meeting all the mentors, we did a trip to San Francisco and uh, <laughs> and all this stuff. And somebody said, oh, you should meet Ryan Graves, uh, who just started this startup called Uber. And, uh, and I was in the Bay Area. And so him and I got a coffee and we just chatted. And at this point, it was like I was starting a taxi app. Yeah. Right. He was starting a taxi app related thing. And this was early, early, early. He had just taken the CEO job. Like this was before it was a thing. It was before they even raised their first round. And, uh, and yeah, we just like networked and socialized and that was it. And three or four months later, I was in New York kind of building out this business and raising around and trying to figure things out. And, uh, Ryan and, and Travis Kalanick, uh, reached out to me and said, Hey, we, uh, we've been growing in San Francisco and we're looking to open up our first New York office, you know, or first office outside of San Francisco, and we're going to go after New York. Would you be interested in in kind of like filling this role of general manager for the New York office? And so it was it was a really hard decision to see like potential and excitement and opportunity here. And like they had resources and backing. And so I could right. scale this impact. But I also had my own thing that I was building at the time on these college campuses and I was excited about and I had investors. And so, you know, with a lot of the support mm. of my investors and my team, they were like, you need to take this opportunity and run with it. And so uh, I decided to join Uber as an employee number seven uh, back in 2010. And uh, yeah, that was a wild ride. I mean, it was just right as the rocket ship was just starting to ignite. It wasn't even taking off yet. And uh, just fighting all the regulatory battles, navigating the black car industry and uh, and kind of just the entrenched interests and entanglements that existed in the in the New York black car and taxi industry. And uh, yeah, it taught me a ton of things around what disrupting a old school, offline, right. antiquated, like deeply insular industry looked like. And uh, I definitely have some war stories from that. <laughs> I, I can only imagine. I'm sure we could we could go through a ton. Maybe maybe we'll sprinkle some in as we as we as we move on a little bit. But sticking with that, I mean, every day right it had to be so different. And you know, pilot working as on a trade desk on Wall Street, like so hectic every day, trying to figure stuff out. You know, maybe one thing goes right, but three things go wrong, <laughs> and uh, it, it was just probably super super intense. And now you go to, which from the outside seems like a very calm startup, right? Transcend, we have trees, you know, we have, you know, beautiful nature. So I guess talk about the the transition, you know, from, from Uber to now trend, Transcend. Talk about what you learned at Uber to take on a Transcend and sort of the mission and vision of, of Transcend now and how you said take, take sort of an offline, massive, massive sector of, of, of traditional business, right? And maybe modernizing it a little bit, much like Uber did uh, for cars and taxis. 
I guess you transcend is trying to do for lack of a better term, you know, end of life or, you know, death and funeral, right? There's some sad things, but then there's also this positive energy behind, behind the whole idea. So, so talk about transcend's uh, mission and vision. Yeah. So uh, transcend our mission is to uh, reforest and rewild the world um, by planting people and pets as trees when they die. And so trying to reconnect humans to nature and remind us that um, that we are nature, we are not separate from it, and uh, using the uh, trees as a as a great teacher in that way. And um, and so absolutely, I hear you. Like transcend is a very different mission. <laughs> Uh, in a very different business. It's one of those things where if you had told me that I'd be running this company three years ago, I would mm. have looked at you like you had 12 heads, like it just doesn't make any sense. But now I look back at the journey and all roads led here. And um, yeah, I mean, Uber was definitely one piece of the story. I think the the landscape architecture degree and the social- Yeah, it's kind of all blending a little bit, right? You know, interests were definitely the seeds of a lot of this. Um, even when I was at Uber, even though I got sucked deep into the venture backed tech startup like boom in New York during those days and like that mm. culture. And even after I had left Uber, I started another transportation startup in the bus space that I scaled and, and kind of raised some money around um, and did all that. And I was, I was like, Mr. Transportation right. entrepreneur right. for a very good chunk of my career. And then that got old. It was like, well, why, why did, why did I get pigeonholed? It was it, the, the, just the way that venture capital kind of goes sometimes it was like, oh, ex Uber guy right. raise money for uh, a new transportation thing. Okay. Well, we'll give him money for a new transportation yeah. thing. It's Easy like, raise. <laughs> do I even like transportation? Like why do I want to start a company? And like, that was with my second company, Buster, that was the the hard lesson that I learned was that six years in asking yourself, why, what is my connection to the purpose of this business? And why am I building this? Because all businesses are hard. Building anything is going to oh, be hard. Yeah. Absolutely. And what I realized with Buster six years in was that I'd been building something that the industry wanted me to build just because of my past track record, right. but it wasn't something that I wanted to build. And when stuff got really hard, um, it was really difficult to maintain that excitement and that passion and that drive uh, to power through the obstacles ahead. And so I vowed that if I ever started another company, it had to be like, not just check one box of interest, it had to check many boxes of interest for me. And so the thing that's like, uh, led me to this more than anything has been very much my my personal spiritual journey, uh, which was one of like which was one of like exploring what do what do what is my definition of God like. I grew up as a Jewish kid on Long Island, bar mitzvah, the whole thing. And then once I got out of Hebrew school, I was like, I do not understand this religion thing. And uh, <laughs> you know, I spent all of my college years being like typical anti-religion, like this is BS, like this doesn't make any sense. Uh, and just convinced that I didn't buy into this stuff. And um, yeah, just a series of life experiences in my early 20s, like pushed me to a place where I needed to believe in something, something mm -hmm. like bigger than myself, and something that just like, wasn't so me focused, um, because that way of thinking wasn't really making me happy. And I started asking those questions and like really cringing at even the word God. And it wasn't until I cracked open Emerson's essay, The Oversoul, 
and uh, started reading that, and that kind of like my beliefs on the world and the universe started clicking into place. Emerson kind of calls this thing called the oversoul. He refers to it as like this interconnected energy that we're all a part of. Um, and he describes it as this like kind of atmosphere that just uh, shrouds the earth, shrouds the universe. And uh, it's this interconnection of all living things. And we manifest as individual versions of it but it's all connected into this, this larger oversoul uh, situation. And um, it was the first time I had heard something, uh, especially with how he was tying it to nature and the definitions of nature and, and, and explorations of how that energy manifests in nature, where it was like, oh, I could, I could get behind this. I could, I could buy into this something bigger than myself. And uh, it pushed me down the American transcendentalism philosophy movement, uh, you know, got me deeply into meditation, which got me deeply into like Vedic theology and India, Indian spirituality, a handful of trips to India. Uh, you know, I'm a twice daily Vedic meditator. Uh, that's a big part of my spiritual practice these days. And, um, and yeah, just constantly asking the questions and going a little bit by bit deeper and deeper down the spiritual rabbit hole. Until for me, like my personal spiritual hero uh, is this guy named Ram Das, and uh, he was he was uh, the Harvard professor in the 1960s who got expelled from Harvard for all of his LSD studies with Timothy Leary. That's right. Uh, yeah, yeah. And yeah. yeah, after that, he went to India to essentially. I mean, his experiences with psychedelics were one where he, as he describes it, entered the room with God, but he always ended up having to leave. And he wanted to figure out if there were more sustainable ways of uh, attaining that connection. And so uh, he found it through different meditation practices and spiritual practices and whatnot. And uh, he's just a voice that has really helped shift my perspective on things. Uh, I think I, I have a tattoo on my left wrist that reads, it's a rental. Um, and, uh, <laughs> <laughs> referring to my body. And um, for me, the thing that has shifted the most is this perspective of what I identify as, you know, like, oh, I look at my body, I touch my body, I, I identify as a body. But like, that's a very, that's an ego identification with this, like, this thing. And just through, through learning and little little progress here and there i've been able to shift my perspective where like i genuinely identify with on a soul level like on this part of me that is going to transcend the physical limitations of this body um and uh and i i do truly believe that like this this body is a rental and so you know from that place of identification on the soul level you know and the bigness that comes with that what does that look like you know, and, and how does that open up the possibilities of how you live your life and how you approach life? And so Ram Das is very much responsible for uh, me kind of having that that perspective shift. Was sort of that discovery stage, did you know you wanted to, You or were you in sort of the, the depths of starting Transcend quite yet or not? Like, I guess, what was the light bulb moment for the startup idea? Because it's 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 really different, right? It's, it's, it's a little bit different. I know there's a couple of startups kind of doing something similar, but it's a very new sort of concept and idea. And so like, how, what was the light bulb moment? Did somebody come to you and you kind of just chatted with them a little bit more? Or did you just call, you know, some, some investors and say, Hey, what do you think about this idea? I guess, talk about light bulb moment of the startup itself. Like how did that even come to be? 
Yeah, I had seen um, this concept go viral about six, seven, eight years ago. Um, these Italian designers uh, had designed this tree pod burial thing. Mm -hmm. Took the internet by storm, went totally viral. And I immediately saw it. And it just like hit me like a ton of bricks. Like, oh, heck yeah, that's exactly what I want. And so I immediately just texted it to my family and said, hey, when I die, I don't know, you know, I don't know how this works, but I want to be a tree. And so I'd always known like, that I wanted to be a tree and, and that this idea, this thing must exist. And, uh, and so I just kind of went about my life because I'm young. I don't need to think about these things. And I let my family know. And if something were to happen to me, like they can go figure it out. And yeah, it was just through, you know, after, after Buster, I, I kind of pivoted in my career to get out of tech. Cause I, I didn't want to be in transportation anymore and went and, uh, started getting involved in some land development projects um, because I, I liked playing with, I like the idea of playing with physical space as opposed to digital tech. And I was working on a massive real estate development project in the San Francisco Bay Area and learning a ton about how to finance real estate projects and land deals and, and zoning and entitlements and all of that fun nuts and bolts stuff. And so I, I had very much like a, a land view on the world at the time, you know, and continuing all of my spiritual stuff on, on the on the backside. And, and a big part of that was contemplating mortality and contemplating death. Like I've personally had my struggles with uh, just mental health and, um, and, you know, kind of like those occasional thoughts of um, suicidal ideation and, and different things in my youth. And, um, and it, it put me in a position where I, I kind of always was asking, what's the point of being here? Why are we here? Why should I stay here? And if I do stay here, what, what should I do with my time? And yeah, just like questioning what happens after we die, like really just inquiring about the mystery of death. And mm -hmm. that mystery is the thing that all religion and all spirituality and all philosophy is like really playing with and dancing with. And just death is one of the juiciest teachers in all mm. different philosophical traditions. And so there's a lot to think about and marinate on. But when I saw this like tree burial concept, it just clicked with me and made all the sense <laughs> in the world of like, of course, I want to go back to the earth, you know, like whatever may or may not happen after we die, which is the ultimate mystery. Nobody has clear answers to the kind of soul uh, uh, predicament of what's happening. But from a biological standpoint, like I am biological matter that will transform if allowed to in the ground into hyper rich nutrients for the nature around it. And so yeah, like, yeah, this, this is what I wanted to get into is like, okay, so how does this like work? So yeah. like, yeah, go, go down that road that you were just about to go down, like how this whole concept works when a person says, I mean, I don't know the statistics, maybe you do, but many people, seems like many people get cremated more than before. I'm not sure, but like a lot of people I know want to be cremated, but then yeah. through that process, I guess now there's sort of this you know, evolution, like you said, our bodies create these nutrients or whatever it may be. But yeah, talk, talk through the, through the, how, like how the process works. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So over the last three years, I've had to go pretty deep in the uh, <laughs> of human decomposition and the science of how trees interact with soil and, uh, and all of this fun stuff, learning about mycelium networks and how, yeah. 
powerful and amazing fungus is. And, uh, and yeah, it's been really wonderful. And we've gotten some incredible advisors locked in along the way, like Jennifer DeBruin, who uh, is involved in the body farm down at the University of Tennessee. There's a few of these body farms across the US. And what oh. they do is they, um, when you donate your body to science, these are examples of where they go. Um, and they're places that study human decomposition for forensic purposes, you know, for police uh, departments being able to identify bodies and say, you know, oh, this has been, de- you know, this person was murdered three days ago or something like mm-hmm. that into those types of things, but also just understanding what is actually happening with our biological matter as it decomposes over time, how long it takes, all of these different things, like what the pH levels in the soil are, what what uh, what different um, elements are being released. And so when you start digging in, uh, what you realize is that our bodies are just organic matter, like anything. Mm-hmm. And if allowed to go back to the earth, it just creates a ton more life for everything around it. Um, And so, you know, when I walk through the forest with friends, I often point out to them or ask them, like, when you see this fallen tree over here, do you see a dead tree? Or do you see like a part of the forest, a thriving ecosystem of insects, you know, like biological matter spawning new life in the forest with so many ecosystems growing on top of it? You know, is that really a dead tree or is that like a huge ecosystem? And so, yeah, the process, the science behind uh, what tree burial looks like is we dig a three and a half foot uh, grave not a six foot grave. So six feet is kind of, oh, six feet under. That's kind of the standard uh, sure. of what, it's, what it is. But um, there's not a lot of oxygenation in the soil down there. Uh, you know, there's not a lot of air circulation. So for green burials or natural burials, the optimal depth is roughly three and a half feet. And, uh, and so then we dig a three and a half foot hole. And then in the bottom, we line the grave with carbonaceous materials such as wood chips or hay, something that uh, creates is carbon dense, but also creates a lot of uh, permeability of air circulation. Then we take a body, we shroud it in biodegradable flax linen. So something, you know, think about a, a linen duvet cover on your bed, you know, that's kind of the material. So uh, real pause real quick. So it, the body isn't cremated, it'll just decompose naturally, you're saying through? Exactly. Once it's, gotcha. Okay. Okay. The body is not cremated and we'll gotcha. talk about that in a second. Okay. Um, you know, cremate. Yeah. We'll talk about that in a second. Uh, and so we take the body, we put it in the ground, shrouded in flax linen. We sprinkle, we, we add on a bunch more carbonaceous material, wood chips and hay. Then we put about a, a foot of soil um, on top of that. And then we introduce our unique blend of ectomycorrhizal and endomycorrhizal fungi. And so this is mycelium, mm-hmm. yeah, the, the fungus my, mushroom networks. And we, we sprinkle that on top. Um, and then we plant a tree and the tree is not a seedling or a sapling. It's an adolescent tree, two to four year old tree with a established root system, but like, think of it like a teenage tree going through puberty. Like it's, it's ready to absorb, absorb all of the richest nutrients, but it's strong enough to withstand some of the other intense flush of nutrients that are about to come its way. And so we plant the tree and in the process of like figuring out the science of all of this stuff, I thought that I was looking for some magic mushroom fairy dust to help with the decomposition process of the body. But in actuality, what I found was that we were really 
focusing on the roots of the tree. And what the mycelium does and the mushrooms do is it acts kind of like steroids to the ends of the tips of the roots of the tree. And it allows the, the tree to reach deeper down into the soil and to like really absorb all of the stuff, take it all up into the roots. Um, and it it strengthens it to withstand some of the stuff that like is a little overpowering throughout the first year of decomposition. Uh, the alkalinity of the soil um, spikes. Uh, there's a lot of ammonium gas release. And so these things can be overpowering, um, but there's so much rich, juicy goodness down there. Uh, carbon, nitrogen, nitrates, phosphorus, phosphates. And like what the mycelium does is it allows the roots to reach down and just live off of all of those nutrients and suck it all up. And so uh, what the research has shown is like a direct transference of your biology taken up into the roots and into the tree. And so you're literally becoming a tree. Your biology is literally becoming a tree. This isn't just like theoretical or an idea or, you know, cool in concept. This is real science and, you know, tr actual transformation. Um and so that's really cool to me. And like back to the cremation bit for a bit, like that is where I struggle personally with cremation. You're absolutely right. The trends are flocking to cremation. Um, right now we're at about 69% of the US is getting cremated. We're projected to be somewhere around 85% uh, by 2030. And that's shocking considering in 1965, we we're talking about a 6% cremation rate. Wow. So there's been a massive shift in how we handle our deceased in the US, but we need to understand why that is. If given the option of traditional burial in cemeteries and cremation, those are really the only two viable options that people are aware of today. Right. And cemeteries have gotten such a, uh, a bad perception in people's eyes because of how cemeteries have been designed historically in the US. And right. then ride past a 100 acre, 200 acre cemetery, uh, myself and so many people have the same reaction. Why is this a way that we're using land? Like, why is this a land use? Like, cemeteries are, are a, you know, ego as a uh, personified as a land use in, in cities where uh, land is very important. And so why is that a way that we're using land? And also like, do I really want to be in a perfectly manicured lawn with a, a headstone and stuff like that? Like cremation is the result um, of people running away from traditional burial, not running towards cremation. It's not like people are like saying, oh, I'm really excited to be incinerated after I'm dead. Right. Um, and that's what cremation is. And people kind of forget that is it's the burning of tons of fossil fuels to completely incinerate your body and render it, render the remains, the cremains that are produced as a result of it. This ash is, has zero nutritional value. You've now taken what was a ripe um, and rich source of biodiversity, and you've destroyed it uh, and rendered it completely inert. And so, you know, it, it's kind of tough and controversial to, to call, to explain cremation in that way, because so many people have been cremated and we don't want them to feel bad about choices that they've made for loved ones in the past. It was just the only choices that they had, you know, is the lesser of two evils. And so now there's this whole slew of 
sustainable alternatives, uh, things that are like much more inspiring and connecting for humans um, that would resonate with them more deeply. And our solution is just one of them. I mean, there's lots of different stuff coming to market right now, and it's all trying to wake people up uh, as they just like blindly uh, skate towards cremation, that cremation is maybe not what the way that you want to go. And it's really nice to have cremation as an option if death is something that you don't want to think about, you want to pretend it's never happening, you want to pretend it doesn't exist. And then like your family will just get stuck with a decision after you die. And and the prospect of a $15,000 bill for a traditional burial or a thousand dollar bill for cremating your body. Right. And so that's what I was going to go back to is, is the economic. Exactly. Separation with those two. Exactly. And it's the economic separation is really rough. um, And it really incentivizes people doing quickest, cheapest, fastest, easiest. And um, that isn't the consumer behavior that necessarily should be prevailing when it's coming down to end of life planning and like the intention and the emotion and the importance of these types of choices and these types of decisions. But when people don't plan in advance, when they leave their family to scramble after they die with the prospect of getting stuck with a huge bill, uh, a third of families go into debt as a result of uh, the cost of funerals and uh, the prospect of just doing like not wanting to figure it out. Like the logistics are complicated. A family member has just died. You're emotionally devastated. And now you're going to a funeral home or anyone and just saying, what do I do next? Like, what am I supposed to do with this body? And what are the steps? Like I need to plan a funeral. I need to get a space. I need to, you know, decide if we're cremating, if we're doing traditional burial, like there's a lot of decisions and a lot of financial implications in those decisions. And when a funeral home says, yeah, we can take the body, cremate it, you'll have the ashes in a day or two, and the cost is just $1,000. Like, man, that's, that is appealing uh, just to have something be done with. But like- but Even most people just, just want to be cremated as well. That's, you know, people I've talked to, like, they just don't want to be buried. Like they, you know, there's, there's also, there's also a psychological thing where I don't want my body to be buried into the ground. Right. So like, they just, they just want to be cremated. So there are circumstances, right. Where people tell their families, like, I want to be cremated. Right. That, that definitely happens for sure. Yeah. I mean, yes, absolutely. And um, it's a conversation that, needs to be had with more options and more perspective because yes, it's uh, oh, I don't want to go into the ground. Okay. Well, what does that look like to you? What does that mean to you? You don't want to be in one of these ornate caskets with all metals and lacquers. Like what's that's shown in horror movies. You know, and, and uh, our, our traditional burial system today is essentially modernized mummification. You know, it's like, Mm -hmm. Oh, how do we, embalm the bodies to preserve the bodies. And a lot of these traditions are like based in some interesting religious ideas, you know, around uh, Christianity views around resurrection and making sure that when Jesus comes back and the bodies are like at least somewhat ready to rise from the dead. And it's just like, if you cremate, that's, that's not a possibility. And so that's why cremation is kind of frowned upon in certain religious circles. Yeah, very much so. Yeah. Um, But like, yeah, you go back to, 
you look at all the different religions and Judaism and Islam have the exact same beliefs around uh, putting the body naturally back into the earth. Uh, they don't support cremation. Um, they don't believe in it. Um, and so, yeah, it's it's understanding like what is the balance of giving people options, giving people a perspective shift of what like being in the ground is. It's and not not like a claustrophobic encasement right. uh, surrounded by a concrete liner in a vault underground in a casket, you know, but like allowing your biology to nourish and feed other biology and transform and create new life. And that's where the, the opportunity lies. What's, what's the part, like time span of like when, you know, a body is buried and then it becomes a tree and that's one question. And the second would be like, have we done this yet? Like, have there been, have you done it with, with, with bodies yet as our case studies for it? Yeah. So um, it all depends. The exact, exact number uh, all depends on kind of the soil in that specific mm. Uh Soil density varies from location to location. And so the more aeration you have, the quicker decomposition can happen. And, uh, but roughly the majority, the vast majority of nutrients kind of decompose within the first year. Um, but then there's still nutrients slowly decomposing over the course of the next two to four years, um, depending on geography. And so, you know, this is a relationship between the tree and the body that is quick in the beginning and then continues to grow uh, well beyond that. And yeah, in terms of has this been happening? Uh, very much so. Uh, the green burial movement in the US has been growing dramatically over the last 20 some odd years. I mean, we've gone from roughly zero uh, green burial cemeteries across the US 25 years ago to now we have 300 plus uh, certified green burial cemeteries in the US. Wow. And um, yeah, I mean, like what a green burial cemetery is, is a, a piece of land that just doesn't allow, allow non-biodegradable materials to be buried in their sites. And so that's a you know simple shroud or a simple pine box, uh, no embalming fluids, uh, no chemicals, no lacquers, no metals, nothing is going into the ground. And yeah, I mean, people have- been, So it looks more like a park than a graveyard? Exactly. Yeah. And so, I mean, I think that's a big piece of this as well, is yeah. that um, it, there is importance around designating land use for the remembrance of our past. It's just a question of, are there better ways to do it design-wise than what cemeteries mm. have evolved into? Mr. Landscape Architecture comes in the day. Okay. So now we're, now we're, we're sort of at the process of, we kind of have it, we kind of have the process down. We understand what it looks like, what it costs to sort of do this process. Now it's, we're at a stage where, how do we make this, visually appealing to sort of the next generation of, you know, those who one will be maybe burying individuals or them themselves are, are passing away soon, where again, instead of maybe being in a graveyard, maybe it is much more like a beautiful park, right? That your family can go to over the years. That's much more appealing, perhaps if it's designed aesthetically pleasing. Exactly. Exactly. So it, it's about designing beautiful places and also thinking about uh, larger climate goals, you know, and like how if cemetery land use was thought about differently, 
How can we use uh, death, which is a certainty and kind of like something that's going to happen to all of us and is going to be consistently happening in society every year? Um, How can we use these deaths as a mechanism for conservation Mm -hmm. and reforestation? Like, how can we tie these things together? And so really, like a lot of the idea behind Transcend was thinking through like, what if we take a piece of land, whether it's a deforested piece of land, a defunct agricultural piece of land, just a lightly forested piece of land. And how can we find a way to buy that land, put it into a conservation easement so that it's really protected and also then rewild that land and create thriving and diverse ecosystems on that land. So we're both doing reforestation and conservation because reforestation without conservation is kind of It's like, oh, let's plant a bunch of trees and then sell the logging rights to timber companies 50 years from now. And it's like, what exactly is the point of that? And so it's the preservation, the conservation bit that's also integral into recreating forests that will hopefully one day become old growth forests because there's just so many <laughs> forests that aren't being given a chance to get to old growth status, you know? Um, Interesting. And so it's like, how do we create these spaces and design these spaces that are aesthetically beautiful, ecologically diverse and uh, thriving? Um, and actually protected. That's the model that we've created with Transcend. So the, the purchasing of the land and then getting the the easement, the, the conservation easement is the way that it's sort of protected. Yes. Is that, and, and that's protected by, is that state law, federal? Is that like a state? Each state probably has different sort of rules around, but it essentially says that what the land cannot be in perpetuity, the land cannot be sold. It can't be infected with, you know, different fertilizers or whatever it may be. I guess, what is the, what does the easement say? I don't want to get into like real estate law here, but. Yeah. So conservation trusts are very much on a local level. And so there's like regional land trusts and they're okay. nonprofit organizations and, and structured in slightly different ways all over. But uh, in, in general, it's entering into a contract with your local regional um, conservation land trust and the land gets donated. What it, What the land is allowed to be uh, how it's allowed to be developed is heavily restricted and um, it can't be, it, it can change ownership, but those restrictions can never shift. Gotcha. So, you know, like if the restrictions are, there can be zero development on this land forever, the land can be transferred, but that zero development rule can never be changed. Gotcha. And so gotcha. it inherently reduces the value of that land because it's taking away the potential future upside of developing it. And so for the trade-off of that future upside, uh, you get ample tax credits uh, sure. from local conservation groups, um, you know, or you get the tax credits from the state and the and federal government, but like it's, it needs to be certified through these local groups. Wow. Yeah. The reforestation. I mean, if you can take, you know, older land that has sort of been depleted, right? And sort of revitalize it. It's sort of a natural forest. I mean, micro forest, right? For, for this, I mean, that's, that is pretty incredible. Is that, have we seen that? I know that that process is very long, but is that something that you foresee happening? I guess, where, where can we, can we look at certain places where this is kind of happening already? Or do you guys have locations that you're currently, 
you know, buy bought distressed land and are going to try to try to do that for? Yeah, I mean, we're we're currently very much in the process of uh, assessing a bunch of different properties kind of throughout the U.S. And uh, fortunately and unfortunately, all of funeral law and cemetery law and conservation law and uh, funeral insurance law, it's all regulated on yeah. a hyper local state by state and municipality by municipality basis. And it varies drastically. There's no federal regulation. So every state regulates funerals and cemeteries completely differently. Um, The good news is natural burial or green burial, which is what our process falls under, is legal in all 50 states. And so it's just a a process of navigating um, how to get these sites popped up. And so in kind of our process of identifying sites, it's a combination of identifying land that is ripe and ready for the good forms of reforestation because there's good reforestation and bad reforestation. (laughs) Uh, You know, bad reforestation is a lot of the types of reforestation that corporate polluters are funding to like grow uh, palm tree plantations, you know, like monocrop cultures of Oh, we planted a bunch of trees. Not all trees are created equal. Yeah. Like when you're doing good forms of reforestation, you're identifying pieces of land that can accept and hold uh, the increased mycelial networks that you're going to be in root networks that you're going to be adding to that land. And it's a hyper diverse ecosystem of various tree species, various bush species, uh, various grass and uh, flower species, uh, all different ways to like make the soil and make that land and make that ecosystem a thriving ecosystem, not just a play, a, a, a nursery, you know? Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, it's identifying pieces of land that are right for good forms of reforestation and finding the right locations that uh, we can navigate those regulations and those uh, those entitlements quickly. Um, and so we're in conversations across a handful of different sites. I don't have a favorite uh, or a preferred at this point. Like, I love all of my children equally. And, yeah, uh, sure, we- sure which one grows up first. But um, but yeah, things are definitely in process. And um, all of the sites that we're looking at are within two hours of major metropolitan areas um, so that uh, we can facilitate day trips for your family members to drive up to the forest and uh, spend a day uh, communing with you after you're gone. Pretty amazing, my man. Fascinating stuff. I have a ton of more questions, but I want to be <laughs> cognizant of your time. Um, so I'll I'll end on one more is, is what does success look like for you? Is this, this seems like a really like a, a long-term place for you. Um, it kind of gravitates all your skills and in, into, into one space, which is it's super interesting, but what does success look like for you? I mean, not just for like the company and, you know, investors or whatever, and the economic success is, is one thing, but also it, it is the goal to be in, you know, have a force in, in all 50 states, right? Like, I guess, what are some of the goals over the next, you know, 20, 24, 36 months or something like that? You know, what does success look like in that, that time range for you? The goals for me are to create something that makes it a little easier for people to inquire about mortality and start cultivating a healthier relationship with what is a pretty deeply rooted fear in Western culture around our mortality. And so having uh, a concept such as turning yourself into a tree that really helps start shifting um, your relationship to your body, 
and it's, you know, it, it is, it's organic form and identifying yourself as nature as opposed to separate from it. I think like more than all the trees that we end up planting, that perspective shift is the most impactful thing we could do in the climate battle is helping society really start to identify as nature um, as opposed to separate from it. And uh, yeah, like what's the, what's the big vision? The big vision is uh, Tom Crowther out of Crowther Labs had uh, espoused this 1.2 trillion tree number. It was very controversial, got a lot of, uh, you know, got a lot of people fired up. Um, but the, the, uh, the gist of it is if we plant roughly 1.2 trillion trees over the next decade in very specific areas across the globe, yep. um, those trees would be able to start sequestering enough carbon to blunt the most harmful effects of climate change. And like that number and that research really got me inspired, not because it's a silver bullet solution. No, of course we need to stop corporate polluters, have governmental intervention, like be attacking this from lots of different angles, but it was a proactive step that we could take technology that we have today, as opposed to like waiting for Elon Musk to invent some magical carbon sequestration machine, um, which is where like a lot of climate tech investment is going towards right now. Yeah, it is. Um, There's a lot of cool stuff happening though. There's a lot of being done. Yeah. It's amazing. Yeah. It's amazing stuff. But in lieu of it, like we have- It's going to be a portfolio of of problem solving tactics, right? That, that, That help us get to this point. Exactly. Well, thank you so much, Matthew. This was incredible conversation, man. Best of luck to you and the team. You know, you, you've been through some uh, some startup wars before, so I'm sure any uh, <laughs> any emotions that you go through, you'll be able to to handle the ups and downs of, of this startup because you were at one of probably the most craziest craziest startup journeys of all time. So, uh, but best of luck to you and the team, and for the next decade to come, man. Yeah, thanks a lot. <laughs>